What a mighty God we serve. Amen. Let me invite you to stand to your feet as we hear the word from this mighty God. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 12. If you are a guest here, there's a Bible in front of the pew that you are sitting at. Feel free to open up to Psalm 12 and follow us there. Psalm 12. Sorry, Psalm 11. That's what we're looking at. I said, I didn't prepare for Psalm 12. (laughs) I was like, wait a second, This this is not looking right. Psalm 11. To the choir master of David. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray one more time. Father, to be in your holy presence to be before your holy word, to be in the midst of a holy community. Father, this is your work. You have done wonderful things for us in your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would continue to do wonderful things. I pray that you would open up our eyes this morning to look into your word and see wonderful things out of your word. Would you, Father, for these minutes, incline our heart to your testimonies and not to anything else that's going on in our soul or that's going on when we leave. Father, unite our heart that we may feel your name. Satisfy us with your steadfast loving kindness that may we rejoice in you and be glad all of our days. Would you cause Christ to shine forth out of your word and meet us as we need to hear from you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. As you're having a seat, let me ask you a question. How much advice do you think you've received in the last two weeks? Or advice that you have received in the last month? Or how much advice do you think you might have received in the last three months? Advice is kind of like the Trinity. It is seemingly omnipresent. It can be found everywhere, right? Unexpected, unexpectedly wise advice can come out of the mouth of a child. The one who told her parents who were in need of a workout that they should run around the backyard like the dog does since he seems to be in pretty good shape. Advice can come from characters in books that we read. Bilbo Baggins advises us to Never laugh at live dragons. In other words, don't get too cocky. 
those who we count dear, like pastors and mentors or sources of advice. I heard one pastor say that the hardest thing that he had to do in his marriage is also the most important thing he had to do in his marriage, which was to respond in a Christ-like manner in the midst of conflict. Somebody better say amen. The internet will not be outdone when it comes to advice. There at your fingertips, you will find guidance all the way from what you need to do to change the world, all the way to 40 reasons why you should not take advice from the internet. If you want to change the world, by the way, the internet says you should start off by making your bed. Sometimes advice comes from the wrong source. Sometimes advice, though helpful, comes at the wrong time, through the wrong person. Here, in a particular place though, there's a place where advice is really needed, really heavily sought after. It's in times of trouble, it's in difficulty, and it is in crisis. And this under the, in this underneath this Genesis 3 curse world, we will find ourselves often looking for advice when trouble troubles us or when difficulties descend on our lives or when the crisis crashes in on you. In that day, advice would be sought and advice will also be offered. And part and parcel of the nature of advice is not only the giving of it, but also the response to it. You can either receive the advice or to reject that advice given to you. In that day when trouble and when difficulty and when crisis arrive, how will you decide to receive the advice given or to reject that advice given? You might be tempted to think this morning, well, hey, you know what, I'm, it's, I'm doing pretty good. I don't have any troubles. I don't have any difficulties. I don't have any crises. Well, my advice to you is to keep on living. Today, when it's sunny in your life, this is a good day to decide beforehand what you will do when the clouds roll in. The title of my sermon this morning offers two pieces of advice that not only David faced, but also what we face in the day of trouble. My hope is that through Psalm 12, we will all be encouraged to receive one piece of advice and to reject the other piece. The title of my sermon is Flight or Fight. Last week, Pastor Nathan walked us through a wonderful biblical theology of the theme of mountains. Throughout the Bible, we see that significant things actually happen on mountaintops. This advice, though, that's given to David in verse number one doesn't seem to be the Isaiah 2 advice that we got last week that says, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Why don't you look at verse number 1. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? We don't know who said this to David. This advice of flight may be coming from the mouth of someone who has David's well-being in mind, somebody who cared much about David. We also don't know what the exact situation is in this psalm like we did in Psalm 3. What we do know is that the day of trouble has arrived. 
Whatever the historical circumstances of Psalm 12 is, one person said it best when he said this psalm comes straight out of a crisis. How do we know this? I want you to peep out the the vivid imagery that we are given to dip our imagination into so that we can feel the weight of this crisis. Advice offered to David could have been something like, now David, you know you're in trouble. You need to get out of here. He could have just said it straightforward. But what we are given is this picture of a hunted bird. A bird that is being hunted is what's supposed to be painted on our mental landscape as we consider this particular crisis. Verse number two, look, behold, the wicked bend the bow. Do you see it in your mind's eye? A bent bow is a ready bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string. In other words, the, the wicked don't pull the string and they don't bend the bow just to see how this thing feels. Oh, man, this is nice. This feels pretty good. No. They have one action in mind. And they have one target that is set in their heart. This is operating out of who they are, the wicked, Actions came forth, and it came forth like this. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. The upright in heart is the one who is in right relationship with the Lord. The upright in heart is the one who is, whose right relationship is showcased through a right and an honest and an upright life. I mean, I know that the upright of heart is not someone who is perfect, but the upright of heart is someone in the context of the Psalms who is innocent. Is it not wicked to unjustifiably shoot someone who is innocent? Wickedness, as we see in our text, is further unpacked. Not only are the arrows prepared for the upright in heart, but these arrows are released from under the cover of darkness, as if doing their dirt in darkness ensured that they were going to get away with their actions. You can almost see the smirks that are on their face as they let their arrows fly. You can almost see in their hearts this this rumination that's, that's renouncing God in their hearts and that's saying in their hearts that, God, you will not call to account. You will not see because I'm doing this in darkness. Have you been in a crisis like this before? Have you been in a situation when it felt like you were a bird hunted by arrows that were coming at you even though you couldn't see them coming? This description here in verse number two doesn't necessarily have to be physical arrows. This imagery can be described in the assault that comes from hurtful and damaging words that are sharp as arrows. Lies, insults, slanders, curses. It could be schemes and plans that are set in motion to set you up, to deceive you, to destroy your reputation, to harm you. David wrote about this in Psalm 64. He says, hide me, speaking to the Lord, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who sharpen their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares, secretly thinking, 
who can see me? Their questions will be answered soon here in our song. What do you do, Jubilee, when the crisis is of such a nature that only imagery and metaphor can capture the depth of it? The wicked had brought about such a decisive victory in this text that verse 3 says that even the foundations were reduced to rubble. Picture the rubble in the aftermath of Hurricane Dorian. The very moral fabric of society had been torn to pieces because of the brazen attack of the wicked on the upright, innocent in heart. The wicked had seized the day and there was total chaos. and So much chaos that David's advisors found no hope in the righteous. They actually asked this question, what can the righteous actually do in this situation? The only advice that they can offer a hunted bird like David was to take flight. Now, if you're familiar with David's story, you know David has fled the scene before, right? He fled from Saul, and he fled from his son. The advice in and of itself of fleeing is not the issue. Sometimes the wisest thing to do in a dangerous situation is to take flight. But there was something else. There was something, however, in this advice given to David that triggered his response in verse number one. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? Wrapped up in this advice was kind of like plan B. David, you need to take flight. David, you need to take matters into your own hands. You need to make a way of escape for yourself. This this advice given to David was not encouragement to fly to the mountain of the Lord. No, David, you need to flee like a bird to your mountain. They are advising him to place his trust, to put his hope, to put his safety in some other place other than the one who has promised to be a shield for all who take refuge in him. We can see this by how David responded to their advice. In the Lord, I take refuge. He could have just said, I take refuge in the Lord. But notice where the emphasis lies. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to another place of safety? There is no other place of safety. Are we tempted to do this in times of trouble? Are we tempted to do this when the crisis hits, when difficulty arises? Has it ever come to your mind? Has your mind and your heart ever advised you to flee to your mountain, your own place of safety, your own place of hope, your own security blanket, any other place except the Lord? Mountains of refuge are plentiful. In times of trouble, we could be tempted to fly to Mount Binge, where we hope to escape our trouble by ignoring it as we binge watch the whole series of The Office, or binge surf on the internet, or binge out on video games. Mount Iso, that may be our preferred destination at times of trouble, where we either isolate ourselves from community and try to handle the crisis on our own, or we isolate ourselves within a community so as to not have to engage this crisis. It's my favorite mountain girl, wash your face. 
It's a popular mountain that we may be tempted to fly to. Here, this is our place of safety. Here, we, this is where we find our only hope. Our own security is in our hands. It's all up to me. It's all up to you. You have to fix your own problem. You have to deal with the crisis out of the resources of yourself. In that day of trouble, advice will abound that you should trust and find the source of your hope in anything, any place, any person other than the Lord. That advice won't be, come, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. That advice on that day would be, flee like a bird to your mountain. On that day when our souls are advised to take flight like this, may our response to that advice be like David's. How? How? How can you say to my soul to flee? In the Lord, I take refuge. What does it mean to take refuge in the Lord? Well, one version of verse number one says that in the Lord do I place my trust. To take refuge in the Lord means to see him as your divine protection. I want you to consider these images of refuge that are all over the place in Psalms that speak to why it is actually a wise choice to put your precious trust in the Lord. The Lord is a rock. The Lord is a shield. The Lord is a fortress. The Lord is a shelter. The Lord is a shadow. The Lord is a stronghold. The Lord is a dwelling place. The Lord is a strong tower. And the Lord is a place of safety. Aren't those wonderful images? Did you see the strong tower in your mind? Did you see the shadow underneath where you can hide and rest? Did you see the rock that hides you? These wonderful images given to us that helps us to understand that the wisest thing to do in crisis is to find ourselves hidden in the one who has these images attached to his name. One author considers the metaphor of the Lord as our refuge to be the second most important metaphor in all the Psalms. The most important one, in his opinion, is that the Lord is king. But how many of y'all know refuge and king are actually quite related, right? Refuge and king have a connection to it. Because the Lord reigns as king, it's his responsibility and it's his power to protect those who are underneath his kingship. In other words, to be a king is to be a protector. We see this beautifully arranged in even how the Psalms are ordered. I encourage you this week, read Psalm 45, 46, and 47. But right now, just listen to how they are described in our Bibles, the title that the Bible gives them. Psalm 45 is this, your throne, O God, is forever, speaking of kingship. Psalm 47 is described as this, God is king over all the earth. And right down in the middle of that, Psalm 46, the description of that psalm is, God is our fortress. This is why David had to respond the the way that he did. What utter nonsense, what other nonsense would it be for me to fly to my own mountain when the Lord is my mountain? He is my refuge. 
Flight? Flight? No, no. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight the good fight of faith, Pastor Dan prayed it. I'm going to fight the good fight of faith to trust him in the trouble and to trust him in the crisis. I'm going to fight with everything in me to take refuge in him when I'm in trouble. Flight? No. We fight. We fight to take refuge in him. The way that David responds to the crisis helps us to see that Psalm 12 is a psalm of trust and a psalm of confidence. I like how one person put it. He says, the psalms of trust declare, 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 say out of our mouths, declare the confidence in the Lord, yet, yet still in the midst of the pain. In other words, they're still in it. They're still in the crisis. They're still in the trouble. They're still in the problem. And yet out of it, they still call off and give confidence to the Lord. This is what psalms of trust and confidence do. Whereas laments, other genres of psalms, focus on the problem, psalms of trust focus on the answer. But both are prayers grown out of a context of suffering. Out of the context of something, there's a declaration that goes forth that says, my confidence is still in the one that I take refuge in. They all express confidence. Confidence that God is both faithful, and watch this, that God is also in charge. Doesn't trouble sometimes encourage you to believe that the Lord is not in charge of this situation? But yet, Psalms of confidence. Declare that not only is he faithful in your trouble, but he's also in charge. And if I'm going to find myself in trouble, brothers and sisters, the best news on the planet is that somebody's in charge. Somebody's in charge. How did David get to the place of expressing confidence in the face of a crisis? And even more importantly, how do we get there? How do we get to the place when we find ourselves in trouble, in crises, in difficulties, that out of our mouths comes forth this same confidence? I think Psalm 9 verse 10 is the key. Psalm 9 verse 10 says, those who know your name, those who know you, put their trust in you. In other words, to the degree that we know the Lord and to the degree that we know his faithfulness, to the degree that we know what he has done and what he is able to do is to the degree that we will actually take this precious thing called faith and put our trust in him. Isn't that, isn't that how it works, right? Isn't it true that you only trust those whom you know very well? This is what we do. Our trust, the preciousness of it, is only for those whom we know well. And the psalm tells us that if we are struggling in our trust of the Lord, one remedy of that is come and get to know him better. Because as you get to know him better, you'll realize that there's no place on this earth that's worthy of your precious trust to just be placed in. But if I'm afraid to put my trust in him it's an indictment that I don't know him as I ought to know him. He's worthy. With that in mind, David turns from the advice to flee to the remainder or to a reminder of who the Lord is and why it is better to fight to take refuge in him. 
Verse number four, the Lord is in his temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. Here we see David proclaiming the Lord's imminence and the Lord's transcendence. When he says that the Lord is in his temple, this is a reminder that the Lord is with his people. The Lord is with his people. Pastor John read from Psalm 46 earlier, so let me read verse 1 one more time to you. God is our refuge and strength, a very present, somebody say present, a very present help in struggle, in trouble, in times of crisis. Present, present, present with you, with you, in it. Psalm 46 verse 2 gives the implication of the presence of God in the presence of our trouble. If if God is present in our trouble, then what should be our response? Verse 2 says, therefore, we will not fear. We won't fear even if stuff like the earth gives way and mountains be moved and waters roar and foam. No, because the Lord is with us in our trouble, because he's with the upright in trouble, we we won't be afraid. The Lord's imminence, his presence, it means that he is not removed from your crisis. It also means that he is not uninterested in your trouble. I hope that that speaks to somebody clearly this morning. The Lord's imminence, his presence, means that he is not, he is not removed from your crisis. And he is not uninterested in your trouble. The presence of the Lord in the temple reminded David that right in the middle of his crisis was his great and his awesome God. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? How? Oh, how important it is to remind yourself, brothers and sisters, that the Lord is present in your problem. He's present there. While the temple encouraged David of the Lord's presence, his throne in heaven reminded David of the Lord's transcendence. His throne speaks to his mighty kingship and its placement in heaven signifies that he's king over all. This moment of crisis, this day of trouble, this is not taking the king over all by surprise. It's not not the king over all off of his throne. Even in the midst of this apparent crisis, he is in control. In his kingly transcendence, the Lord is far above all. He's far above all. And therefore, to the surprise of the wicked, verse number four says, his eyes see all. His eyes watch. His eye is not like the eye of Sauron. I had to get two references to Lord of the Rings in here. Not like the eye of Sauron. Remember what Boromir said to the secret council at Rivendell? He said this, one does not, wish I had his accent, one does not simply just walk into Mordor because the great eye is ever watchful. The the great eye must have blinked too long because two hobbits just simply walked into Mordor. The Lord's eye misses no one. His gaze is everywhere. The scriptures use the word see at times. Seeing has a connection to judgment. The Lord doesn't see in order just to figure out what's going on. The good news for those who take refuge in him, 
And the bad news for those who refuse to take refuge in him is that the Lord sees, he knows, and then he also pronounces judgment. Verse number five, the Lord tests the righteous. The righteous are the same as those who are upright in heart. The Lord tests the hearts of righteous towards him and approves of them. Why? Well, operating out of who they are comes forth righteous deeds. And verse number seven tells us that the Lord loves righteous deeds. And the reward for passing the test is that the upright shall behold his face. Yes, upright him, uh, uh, yes, behold, the upright will behold his face ultimately. Yes, the, the upright will see who God is at the end of time, right? But in the context of Psalm 12, the righteous will uphold, will behold the face of the Lord in the crisis. In the crisis, they'll behold the face of the Lord. Those who make the Lord their refuge will not be disappointed or be put to shame because he did not come through. The wicked don't fare as well. From Psalm 1 to Psalm 50, it's clear that the wicked will not stand in judgment. When the, when the wicked fail to realize, even as their, their arrows are being shot through the dark at the upright, what they fail to realize is that the Lord, the King who sees all, that to him darkness is not darkness at all. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to him. David is as right as rain to place his confidence in the one who verse 7 tells us is righteous. Would we, Jubilee, would we, would we have hearts that think deeply and often about the righteousness of the Lord? Would we find ourselves lost in contemplation, especially in the midst of trouble, over the fact that the Lord is perfectly just, he's perfectly upright, he's perfect in moral excellence. He who is righteous also does righteousness. He loves the deeds of the righteous because those righteous deeds look just like his righteous deeds. There's nothing more right in the entire, entire creation than the righteousness of God. And there's nothing more good in the entire creation than the righteousness of God. What would unravel the fabric of this universe is not the deeds of the wicked, even though it may seem like that from our perspective. What would unravel the fabric of the universe is an unrighteous God. The Lord fell in his own ethical character. The universe would be destroyed. Not dealing with wickedness, which would be against his own moral excellence, would be the greatest injustice in the entire universe. This is why verse number seven grounds his response to the wicked. It holds it up. It's a strong language here. What holds it up? Because the Lord is righteous, verse seven says. Because the Lord is righteous, verse number five, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Hate is a strong language, and as Christians, we feel uncomfortable associating it with a God whom we know to be is love. How do we handle such language? We start off by coming to grips with the reality that the right response to the assault of wickedness on the goodness of God's righteousness is hatred. Divine hatred is the flip side of the coin of divine righteousness. Righteousness, in order to be righteous, must hate unrighteousness. The good news of the gospel is that right hatred towards wickedness is not the end of the story. 
Those of us who are Christians, we understand what Acts 3.26 tells us. Acts 3.26 speaks to us and says to us that God, having raised up his son from the dead, sent Jesus Christ to us to bless us by turning every one of us away from our own wickedness. Right? Friend, if you're in here and you're not in Christ, or you know yourself to be wicked, the Lord has brought you here to hear, to hear the good news that Christ turns from wickedness. It's the wicked who persist in their wickedness, who persist in their rebellion. These are the ones who receive the right judgment of the all-seeing God. Verse number six says, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. In the Old Testament, we read of a story of the Lord coming down to see and to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even with the intervention of Abraham's plea to save the city, even if he found only ten righteous people found in them, the cities were still judged with coals of fire and sulfur that rained down on them. This is what the wicked deserve, and this is what the wicked will get if they persist in their wickedness. Because of who the Lord is, and because what he is faithful to do, David was right to look at those who advised his soul to flee to a mountain like he heard the craziest thing in the world. How can you say to my soul, flee? I've already fled to the one who will protect me. He is my confidence, and he is my refuge. Let me end with two questions of application. What does this text call us or teach us to believe? What should we believe as a result of our time here in Psalm 12? To answer that, I want you to consider how Psalm 12 fits not only in the whole book of the psalm, but also in the whole story of Scripture. The book of Psalms, if you know, is made up of five books. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is the prologue to this book, and they call us as readers to obey the Lord and to know that he, to obey the law of the Lord and to know that despite what it looks like, the Lord reigns through his anointed son, the Davidic king. From the beginning and unpacked further in Psalm 12, we are taught that blessed or happy are those who take their refuge in him. Started in Psalm 3, the rest of the Psalms move from lament to praise. Lament because the whole story of Scripture tells us that though David was promised to have a son on the throne, all of his children failed except one. This is why the Psalms move from lament to praise. Praise because despite what it looks like, the Lord will reign through his anointed son, the true king. The reader can trust that this is going to happen. And the good news of the gospel is that this has happened in Jesus. Jesus is the true king. He's the true son. And blessed are all those who take refuge in him, who run for protection in him, who trust in him. And lastly, what does, that's what this text calls us to believe. What does this text call us to do? When we find ourselves in a day of trouble, brothers and sisters, and in the moments of crisis, those moments that question the reign of God through his son, Jesus Christ, we are to reject any advice to flee to a, like a bird to our mountain. Don't go looking for refuge in anything that this world has to offer. Fight tooth and nail. Do what you need to do 
Call who you need to call. Cut off what you need to cut off. Fast from what you need to fast for. Do all that is necessary, all that is possible to fight the good fight of faith, to take refuge in Christ. I promise you on the veracity of this word that you will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, your word is good. I pray that it would be as honey to our taste buds. And as we leave this place, Father, we have our hearts just absolutely encouraged in the fact that in you is our safest place. Father, would your word do work in our hearts this week? Would it bring forth fruit? Grant us grace to do it. For brothers and sisters who need to run to refuge you in you, grant them grace to do so. Call other brothers and sisters alongside of them that they may help them in this endeavor. Thank you for being our refuge. Thank you for being our strong tower. Thank you for your son in whom we are hidden and are safe. Will we find ourselves in him all our days? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.